Hello, good people. Before we dive into today's episode, I have a quick favor to ask. If Say More has struck a chord with you, and if there's somebody in your life who you think would really enjoy tuning into these conversations, please take a moment to share Say More with them. Building the Say More community, it really matters because there's a growing number of us who have decided that no matter the complexity or challenges that we see around us, we're still going to do our best to not only not do harm, but to make things better. That is a beautiful and bold commitment, and the best-kept secret, y'all, is that there are more of us than we're led to believe. So share, say more, and if you have a moment, please rate and subscribe to our podcast. It helps us get these conversations out to a broader community of people. We've lined up some incredible episodes, and I'd hate for you to miss a single one. Thank you for your support. Now let's get into the show. My feeling is that like culture also just has a really outsized role in like building in real life personal connections that form the social capital that builds movements. You know what I mean? And that just like three step process feels really important to me. And like I, you know, I don't want like to just stand by and watch people retreat into their digital lives without trying to do something about it. And the thing I try to do is I recognize full of poop and d- jokes. <laughs> but I do feel like it's like this little part of the process that matters. At a time when our society can feel more divided than ever, join us as we explore what it means to adapt and evolve together. Welcome to Say More. I'm Tulane Montgomery, CEO of New Profit, and your host. Hey, Say More family. Have you ever met someone and right away, it felt like maybe this was a long-lost distant relative of yours, not because you looked the same, but because you had so many similar ideas, experiences, and beliefs? I'll tell you, I felt just like that with our guest today, Nagin Farsad. She's a stand-up comedian, an actor, and a filmmaker. She's also a policy wonk, which I find to be just a beautiful combination. I'm a big fan of her work, and so I was really excited to get a chance to talk with her today. In our conversation, Nagin shares how she stumbled upon comedy while actually pursuing a career in government. And while she didn't end up becoming a politician, She found her way to make an impact chuckle by chuckle, as she likes to say. Today, we talk about how policy is important, but it's not enough by itself to create systemic change. You need to start on the cultural front, and comedy can be a great way to get into some of the tougher conversations that we really need to have in this country. Nagin also talks about some of her wildest experiences working to find common ground across different identities and beliefs. I hope you enjoy this final episode of the season with the one and only Nagin Farsad. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so, so good to see excited. you. I'm so excited. I not, you know, I'm trying not to fangirl too much, but you know, I'm gonna go ahead and give you some flowers because, <laughs> you know, Nagin, I'm not afraid of much. Like, you know, talking to a room of 500 people about an inclusive democracy, I'm in. You know, yeah. raising money, I'm in. You know, starting an organization. But getting like a tight five or a tight 10 <laughs> scares the shit 
out of me. So like the fact that you do that and you do that in the body that you are in and you do it for impact and justice is just, it's actually an aspiration. And so I'm really glad that you're here. I'm really glad that you're here. Oh, thank you so much. That's so nice to hear. Thank you. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. So, so much of what's happening right now, I don't have to tell you, it's so heavy. Yeah. And it's so fraught. And it's really, I feel like it's getting harder to actually dialogue. Yeah. Versus easier, you know? Yeah. And so we're going to talk about how you have, through your work, really addressed that. But just as a way to kind of get here, a uh, little icebreaker question, Nagin. Let's see. I got a few in my head. The question I'm going to ask you is if you had to watch a TV show every day yeah. for the rest of your life. Right. You could pick the season and all that, but one show. Yeah. What would it be? Oh, my God. That's <laughs> a really interesting question. Well, I, I think... I would probably choose something with, um, it's a toss-up between 30 Rock and Veep. I think in both cases, I mean, Veep is showing you this like kind of slice of life of, of um, Washington, D.C. And if you talk to people who like live and work there and who like work in government, there's a lot in there that is real to them. You know what I mean? So there is like some documentary involved in <laughs> Veep, which I think is really fun. And also, you know, I used to be a government worker. And mm -hmm. so I think it's oftentimes we sort of forget that like politics is just run by people and people are so dumb. Like all of us were just so ridiculous and stupid all the time. And I am like, you know, foremost in that example, but also it's also run by people who are well-intentioned and people who have hopes and dreams for their, you know, for their district, for their country, for themselves. Um, so it's really funny and also just like a good reminder of that. And then I would say about 30 Rock is just like joke density. Yes. You can come back to that show and like discover a joke that you didn't even notice the first five times you watched the episode. Yes. And obviously like Tina Fey is um, just, you know, a beyond master of the craft and so yeah that's the, another show that i just can't get enough of yes well okay i love that so if we were going to go with films my answer was easy i didn't even have to think about it the whiz the whiz oh okay right okay i mean you know michael jackson's you can't win you can't get even and you can't break out of the game as a scarecrow is just it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. Wait, and what what year was there Wiz? It was like 80... Oh, God. Maybe middle? Something. Maybe. Okay, yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so bad. If, I'm so bad at that. Do you feel like the film has aged well? <laughs> what has? I mean, no, we're going to talk about you, that. Yeah. Nothing ages well. No, right? no, no. I, I mean, mean, there's like, things that you love from your childhood, but it's like, it's like if you have to rewatch this movie over and over as you're on a, a desert island, you know... I know. I know. You have to you have to consider your adult self and your child <laughs> self. It's true. It's true. I mean, what an age well. That's a question I'm going to reflect on. I mean, you slide some oil to me. Nipsey, I almost said Nipsey Hustle because I'm so used to saying that. Nipsey Russell. You know, there's such classic, there's so many classic scenes. You know, I have to think about that. I think it does all right. I think so. <laughs> You yeah. know, but I'm okay. going to go back okay. with that view. And I'm going to get back to you, Nagin, on if it actually yeah. ages well. Because very few content, like not a lot of content does. No, I know. <laughs> and so it's like you have to like just have something from it. But at the same time, 
you know, when it comes to that thing, you know, people talk about like revisiting movies and stuff like that. Oh, and it didn't age well, or like turns out this was racist or whatever. And I totally watch those things and then I cringe at the moments that didn't age well. You like, you know, but you watch a movie like, I don't know, Say Anything or something, yeah, yeah. which is just like w- one of the great romantic comedies yeah. of the 20th century, I'm going <laughs> to ridiculously say. Okay. And I get that like, you know, John Cusack standing outside of a woman's house holding a stereo over his head now reads stalkery. Yeah. Yeah. But what an iconic scene. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's right. Like, and, and so it's like, I get that a lot of things like don't age well, but also in terms of like just being reflections of the moment they were in, like how cool. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, yeah. It's true. It's so true because like, listen, if we talk TV shows for me, <laughs> two of my favorites are The Cosby Show. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. The Chappelle Show. Sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah. in terms of content, I still will stand by that those right. are brilliant, brilliant creations, you know? Right. And in terms of this particular moment, there's, you know, some controversy and complexity for folks if they hear me say that I love Dave Chappelle Show. I love it. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So. I just think it's tricky. And, you know, as a comedian who is not only doing, you know, the 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 beautiful, I think, gritty work of stand-up comedy, but you're also a filmmaker and a director, right? You do all aspects of the genre. But I do wonder, like, do you have a sense, Nagin, of something that you're kind of getting early indicators that in a few years you're going to have a different perspective about it? Is there anything like that emerging in your life these days? Oh, my God. You know, I wonder, I mean, (laughs) I'd like to think, Tulane, that I'm perfect and that I've already predicted all these things. And so I'm already like living my my least, you know, bigoted life. (laughs) Um, Right, right. But that's such a good question. I wonder, like, look, I'm a comedian and in the green room, the green room is like not a safe space you know like we say the worst things but as we're about to go on stage we are we we i mean like the most horrible jokes that are also always too soon like when we wouldn't say them on stage Mm. like we just we'll say it in the green room and i think that's one of my problems there's probably a ton of things that i can't anticipate about the future that i'm gonna be corrected about like for my daughter's generation because and part of that is because comedians are not sensitive to like most things you know what i mean like we you know like comedians will be the first ones to like be vegan but make fun of vegans you know what i mean like no one is sensitive to things and so i can see you know and it's funny too like my danger dar has always been off. Like I've gotten death mm. threats and stuff like that. Yeah. And I've always been like, eh, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I, I mean, it's annoying, you know, I'm not going to say it's, it's not good or whatever, but like, I don't know. There's something about just like this business that sort of takes away from you the like sensitivity around <laughs> some of these things, yes. which I think is almost a good quality for the entire internet to embrace one day. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, good luck um, with that. But yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. No, exactly. Exactly. 
you know, you know, you talked to Nagin about this is sort of part of being in the industry of, of of being a comedian. But I have questions about like, do you feel like you came into the world with what some would call thick skin, right? Mm-hmm. Or is it that you learned that over time? Because I think what makes a lot of people, certainly me, terrified yeah. at the idea of being a comedian, even though like in my mind, look, listen, in my mind, I can do a tight 10 and shut the whole room down. Yeah. I can do a full split yeah. and unassisted pull-ups. Like there's a whole <laughs> set of things I can do in my mind, right? And I'm killing it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I just wonder, like, did you come into the world that way or did you learn that kind of, um, I don't know, I, I say toughness. I don't know if that's even the right word for you. Right. Talk about that. Well, I, I, that's a, that's a great question. I think, so I think also like, when you're a woman in this field, you have to like learn a set of things that are just sort of not necessarily part of what we teach girls or what we used to teach girls. Mm. And I think one of those things, like I remember in college, you know, I joined, I auditioned for and got into the college sketch comedy troupe Ooh. at Cornell where I t- went to school. And it, it ended up being, you know, I, I was a double major in government and theater but this sketch comedy troupe sort of eclipsed everything. Like I lived for this troupe and I, I did everything in, and, and it was usually two girls and like 12 guys. Uh-huh. That was the, the breakdown. And obviously I think it was also mostly were we all white except for me. Yes. I remember there was a sketch called white guys with brown hair and glasses because we had like eight of those or something. <laughs> And you can even probably remember like early days of the Daily Show where they would win Emmys and it would just be a row of white guys with brown hair and glasses, like accepting the award. So that's like the com that's the comedy world that I came up in. And I learned early on that nobody's gonna write for me. I have to write for myself Uh because they just don't have it. It's not even that they hate women or whatever. It's just like they all grew up in the same place we grew up, which is like we didn't they didn't see women in these kind of archetypal leadership figures that are not, you know, it's like they saw women as wife, um, mom, you know, maybe irritating neighbor, you know. So there's some yeah. archetypes that we assign to women, but it was never like, you know, CEO of a Fortune 500 in a right. sketch. And so for that, you just go to your central casting, whatever's in your head of central casting. And for me, it's even like a tall man with silk, you know, kind of salt and pepper hair or mm-hmm. whatever. Like that's mm-hmm. the guy. It's like a Mitt Romney looking guy. Right. And, <laughs> that's very specific, uh, Nikki. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he was he was the right the CEO of a, of a very yeah. well um a big company. But um yeah yeah. So that's a kind of like how people grow up. They grow up with these archetypes in their heads. And so mm-hmm. then when you come into a situation where you don't fit any of those, yes. you have to do your own work and you have to write things. Oh, I would write things for myself and I would I would literally cast myself as a man to play parts or whatever, because I would be like, well... It would be crazy for this part, you know, this this presidential part to go to a woman, but I'll play the man. And I'll still be able to do, you know, act in these pieces um, and these sketches or whatever. So, like, I, I did a lot of stuff like that where I was just, like, doing workarounds. So that was kind of an early lesson. And then the next thing I think that developed thick skin was just being in New York City. I mean, in the comedy scene here, this is where people, I mean, in the world want to, you know, cut their teeth on comedy. 
this is probably the capital of comedy in the world. And it is like, there's hundreds of comics. It's a cutthroat world. The way the system works is you start out in open mics and you graduate to like paid spots and whatever. And you have to eat a lot of dirt. Um, you have to like stare audiences in the face as they look at you silently, not laughing. You know, there's just, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot um, that really kind of toughens you up, you know, and then you have to go home and try and not take it personally, even though it feels like an utter rejection of you on an individual yeah. level. <laughs> um you have to somehow not take it personally so that you could continue doing the work. And it's very, I, I would say it's very difficult. I, and I, and I, you know, because I do, because I'm a writer and an actor and a director and I, you know, and, and I do voiceover work and I have a podcast. So I have, I, I work in like eight different mediums, but I honestly think that stand up is the hardest thing that I do. It is by far the hardest thing that I do um, just because of the way that this, this whole thing is set up and how much dirt you have to eat. Wow. So Nikki, there's <laughs> so much in there. First of all, <laughs> I think we may be in some way that we don't yet know, maybe distant cousins or something, because <laughs> first one thing is you also like me, I also had a double major in government and theater. Oh my and God. I have never in my life met someone else who had the same. Oh and maybe, my I'm sure God. Yes. And it's like, yes, yes, I get it. I get it. I get it. Every time people hear that, they're like, oh, that's a strange combination. Yeah. And, I'm like, and you're like, but it isn't. Yeah. But it isn't. Right. You know, so so one, there's that. And then <laughs> everything you said about you work in all these spaces, but that stand up comedian role is the one that is the hardest and that keeps you the sharpest. And that requires, it sounds like the most evolved, you know, sense of self. Right. I mean, because yeah. if you feel that rejection and you cannot take it personally, and it's all in the pursuit of giving other people the gift of laughter, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it yeah. is this sacrifice in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> it's really something. So, okay, I'm curious. So when you were at Cornell, you had the double major, you know, political science and theater. Did you initially plan to go directly into comedy? Did you, were you going to have another career and do this on the side? How did that evolve for you? I mean, I always thought, I mean, I honestly thought I was going to like be president of the United States. Like that was the goal, little Nagin's goal. And moving to New York, I gallivanted around uh, Paris waiting tables and teaching English and, you know, um, being a, a cashier for a while. Yes. Um, and I did the same in London. And then I, I remember like, you know, getting an email from friends who were living in New York. They were just like, Hey dude, like from that sketch comedy troupe being like, come to New York, we could totally do comedy. It'd be fun. And that was like, that's what happened. I came here because I could do comedy. But like what I said to myself was that, Oh, that'll be like a great place for me to regroup, apply to grad school. Like I'm going into politics. I'm on that path, wow. you know? And I had like interned for C-SPAN. I interned on in Congress. I, I, you know, I did all of those things in college because I was serious about it. And I ended up going to grad school at Columbia, the School of International and Public Affairs, and 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 pairing that with a degree in African American Studies. So I got a dual master's degree at Columbia, and I wanted to, you know, and, and the goal again. And I entered for. For Charlie Rangel. I interned for Hillary Clinton. I was just very serious 
you know, in a career track graduate program where people would be like half of the Japanese government would just like send people there and be like, I'm here on loan from the Japanese government trying to learn more about, you know, developing public policy for social services or whatever. And it was like serious people trying to do this thing. And I was serious, but I was also like, um, you guys, I can't make the study group tonight because like I have a set downtown. So I, I have to go like, so I was serious, but I was all, I always had one foot out the door. And it's so crazy. Cause if you look at the people that I was in school with, they're all like at the white house, they're at the IMF, they're, they're, you know, they're just, they're just the most ridiculous people, and then there's me. Um, so I did. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But um, but I did. I was a, a policy advisor for the city um, at the campaign finance board in New York. But again, I was always doing comedy on the side. And so eventually my friends sort of staged an intervention and they were just like, snap out of it. You want to be a comedian? And I was like, no, that's the most self-serving profession. Why? I can't be a narcissist professionally. <laughs> and um you know, but then that's what, ha- you know, that's, that's what, what happened. happened. I love the intervention of friends. So you told Hillary Clinton, and I didn't realize you'd also interned with her, but you told Hillary Clinton on the um, Apple TV show Gutsy yeah. that the pull of comedy, you couldn't say no to it. By the way, I'm referring to Nagin's feature on an Apple TV show called Gutsy, hosted by Hillary and Chelsea Clinton. In the show, the former Secretary of State and her daughter, meet trailblazing women, artists, activists, and leaders, and they share their journeys, their lessons, their aspirations for the world. Nagin spoke with the Clinton women about her journey in comedy. Check out that show. We put the link in the show notes. I think you kind of described what that looked like, but I was curious. I wanted to invite you, Nagin, to say more about that. You know, being in these really serious spaces you just described, you know, working with very serious people about really important systemic change issues. What was the pull of comedy? Like, what did that actually look like in your life? It's interesting. Like, I, hilariously, I don't remember what I said to Hillary Clinton, even though that was the most memorable day of my life, um, to be able to film that show with her. But I would say that, you know, there's, there's something about being a comedian or you don't have a boss, and you just say whatever. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I think, and, and when you're working in, in the institutions, like a city hall, like a city agency, like the federal government, whatever, you are working under parameters. And sometimes it can be really frustrating to do that. And, and I mean, the people who do it have incredible patience. They have incredible resilience and work around. They figure out a lot of strategies to make it work. And then I think I just wanted to work outside the system and comment on the system. Because the other thing that was really like kind of clear to me, especially in the early days when I, you know, went into standup was that affecting like cultural change, I think is as important. It kind of goes hand in hand with policy change. There's a little chicken or the egg involved. So you can, in, in order to be able to enact like meaningful policy change, you know, let's call it an Obamacare or the right to uh, marriage or whatever. Um, you, there has to be a kind of cultural shift that accompanies that or that precedes it. Or that sort of lays the groundwork for it. Otherwise, 
those policy changes are just like not going to be embraced. And I felt like I was like just a better soldier on the cultural front um, than I was on the policy front. So my feeling is that like culture also just like has a really outsized role in like building in real life personal connections that form the social capital that builds movements you know what i mean and um but that just like three-step process um (laughs) feels really important to me and like i you know i don't want like to just be you know stand by and watch people retreat into their digital lives without trying to do something about it. And the thing I try to do is I recognize full of poop and d- jokes. Um, <laughs> but, but I, but I do feel like it's like this little part of the process that matters. No, it does, you know, and, and poop jokes. Cause you know, everybody poops. Like there yeah. is something unifying yeah. about a good poop joke. Yes. If we can kind of get over ourselves because yes. everybody poops. Right. So like, okay. Let me ask you another thing. I want to go back a few steps in terms of your story. Sure. Also, when talking to Hillary Clinton, so I, I took notes on it, so I'm going to help remind you of what you said to Hillary <laughs> on Gutsy. Okay. Um, you also talked about how people who loved you, when they learned that you were going to honor the call of comedy, that they loved you no less, but they were disappointed, right? You even made a joke about, well, yeah. I kind of knew my mom was disappointed because I overheard her saying to a friend, I'm disappointed in Nagin, you know? (laughs) So I also, I think we might be distant cousins. I also have relationship with making a choice based on a calling that disappointed people who love me, right? When I made the choice to not go into sort of business, I was a business strategy consultant and all that. And I made the choice to go into education and social entrepreneurship. And, you know, people who loved me were like, really? You sure about that? Yeah. And so- that for me, I'll tell you, Nikki, was really difficult. The fact that to do what I was called to do disappointed people who I loved. And so how present was that for you? Was that hard? Were you like, yeah, you'll be okay, mom. Give me a couple of years and you'll be really, really happy about this. Or was it a struggle? I mean, that's interesting. It was, I would say I put it off, you know, I would just be like, just give me some time. Like, let me just show you that it it's going to be okay. Because the thing that was upsetting to me, you know, more than just like their disappointment that I didn't go into a more stable field or whatever, and like a field that they can like brag to their friends about or whatever, is that like they worried about me financially. And like the last thing you want to do to your immigrant parents who already went through so much to make it all happen in America mm-hmm. is to mm-hmm. then be like, hi, I'm going to like, you know, add this layer of uncertainty to my future by going into like the worst profession where there's no financial assurances at all whatsoever, you know, and I'm just going to carry on the immigrant tradition of no financial assurances. <laughs> um, and they're sort of like, we already did that. So you didn't have to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it, yeah, but it's real. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's the thing that really, you know, was, was in my mind all the time was just like, I need to like become financially stable so that they can relax because I don't want them to have this concern. They've already worried their whole lives. I just don't want them to worry anymore. And it's funny because even now, like it it was in the last, you know, seven or eight years that they've 
that they stopped kind of like actively worrying. But even now, they'll just be like, oh, can we uh, help you buy groceries or something? And I'm like, no, I got I got it. I got the groceries. <laughs> it's fine. Like, we don't, it, we don't need to, you don't really don't need to do that anymore. Um, but there was like, but it, there wasn't, you know, that's the other, you know, the, the frustrating thing about being an artist in America, which is, I think, not the case for a lot of, you know, countries with like bigger social safety nets that also exist for artists is like, you know, I did need their help so much in the early years. I was like, Oh, if you want to see me for Christmas, you're going to need to go ahead and buy me a plane ticket, you know, Um, stuff like that would always happen. And so I think it was, it was present for me um, that I was disappointing them, but just more so that I was worrying them. Mm, That's a really yeah, and like in that, it's hard to let go of that worry. Well, one, let's just shout out to your parents. You are loved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are yeah, loved. Yeah. You know, and that is a beautiful thing. But right, worrying, you know, our parents who love us is is a whole nother dimension to it. I guess the question that comes up for me now is, as I've studied your work and and watched your shows and and your creations, it's like you seem to have a lot of spaciousness, right? Like you talked in one of the interviews I saw about how you were able to hear what for some would be rage-inducing questions, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that you were able to really empathize with Mm -hmm. the person asking the question in a way that allowed you to meet them where they were. And I think you talked about sort of chuckle by chuckle. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Advancing social impact, right? Chuckle by chuckle. Yeah. So where did you get that spaciousness from? Oh my God. I like, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think I made a movie called the Muslims are coming and I took a bunch of Muslim American comedians on a, um, on a tour around the country with my buddy Dino Bidala. And then we would do shows that we called the Muslims are coming and they would be free because we didn't want there to be a barrier to entry. And then we would do mm-hmm. these like street actions and, and then we would interview people like John Stewart and Rachel Maddow, whatever luminaries to like talk about, you know, say hilarious things about Islamophobia. And this was, so this movie came out in 2014 and like, the, you know, part of the the challenge there was getting people to talk to me on camera. Mm-hmm. And I think the best way to keep them talking is like just to not alienate them. And so part of it is a little bit of that, stand-up comedy mentality of like, Mm -hmm. well, I'm going to be on this stage for 12 minutes. They hate me. Let's see what I can do. You know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) can I, can I win them over somehow? Can I, and I feel like that, you know, something about just being able to talk to people and like just that entire process made me really, I wanted to go in. The idea was to go in and be, if you've never met a Muslim, that we would be your first Muslim friend. Mm -hmm. Right. And so part of that is like, you know, when you make friends, it's not like you've set your first step. Isn't like, how did you vote? It's so, you know, your first step is like, I'm going to get a latte. What can I get for you? You know, it's like so much more friendly than that. And so I feel like the idea was to go into these situations with the intention of making friends. And when you do that, you just behave differently. And the other thing is, you know, I, remember a time in my life when I was in high school and everyone used to say, this is gay, that's gay. I was probably a little homophobic, blah, blah, blah. And then I go to college and like, you know, some of the first friends I made were gay. And I was like, oh, turns out like I'm totally cool with gay people. Like turns out I'm not homophobic at all, but I just needed 
direct exposure. Mm-hmm. So there's a time in my life where I needed to evolve. And if someone had talked to me in a way that was alienating, I maybe wouldn't have evolved. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Maybe I would have doubled down. I think it just doesn't work when we respond with rage. And, you know, because especially in, in 2012, it's interesting because I, I don't think I would get a question about 9-11 these days. But in, when we were shooting in 2012, 2013, we got questions about 9-11 all the time. Yeah. And, you know, and people would just literally say, what do you think about 9-11? And I would have to just literally answer. And I think part of that is just like, I mean, why would you even really know what a Muslim thinks about 9-11 if you've never met one? And if your main access to a Muslim is through like negative footage on Fox News, like why would you know? And so it's a fair question Mm. and you just have to kind of meet people where they're at and you have to kind of put yourself in the shoes of like, what is their media diet? Like who are their family Uh members? Like what is the world of like rhetoric that they're hearing? And you look at victories like Andy Bashir just recently won the governorship in Kentucky. And one of the things they talk about, and that's a very red state, he's a Democrat. One of the things they talk about is how much he traveled the state. He traveled mm-hmm. the state multiple times. He would show up every time there was a problem. And there was like some joke going that like, if there was a disaster, the first person that would show up before the aid agencies would be, Andy Bashir, you know, and he would just be there like praying with people, hugging them, just giving them reassurance. And these are people that didn't probably didn't vote for him. Right. And I think that matters. It helps it like, and then guess what? He like won (laughs) reelection. You know what I mean? And so I think it's like, if we approach things about kind of like being there for people and seeing things from their point of view, it just like, makes conversations more fun. It is also more fun to make friends than enemies. I don't know if anyone has figured that out, but I (laughs) have figured that out myself. Right. right. It just feels better. It's more fun. It's just more fun. Yeah. 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 It's just more fun. It's true. Making friends is certainly more fun than making enemies. Yet it's easy to come across people who don't seem to think that way. As Nagin knows from her own personal experience. One story I've told somewhere is we were at a state fair actually in Tennessee and there was like a bare knuckle boxing match happening at the state fair and um, we were filming the Muslims are coming and I was like, oh my God, you guys, I have a fantastic idea. Like, let's go offer our comedy services between matches at this bare knuckle boxing match. <laughs> and everyone's like, ah, uh, I don't know. Like we're liter- we're in a very like rural part of Tennessee. This is a state fair. It's like the setting is just could not be more antithetical to what I was proposing. Yes. And I, w- so, but I went up to the ticket person. I was just like, hello, we are a jolly band of Muslims and we would like to offer our comedy services. And the guy was like, uh, I don't know. Okay. Let me go ask my boss, I guess. And then he goes and asks his boss, the boss comes out and He's not wearing a shirt, but he is wearing like a bow tie, you know, to commemorate the occasion. And Without he finds, the shirt. No, I'm sorry, I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, no sure. shirt, no okay. shirt, but a like a bow tie, okay. and um, it was a look. And he comes <laughs> out and he grabs like a stick that was just like hanging against the wall. And then it's in that moment we were like, oh, there's like a stick right there. And then you're like, 
oh, these are people boxing because they have no regard for the skin on their knuckles. And there's a, like little droplets of like blood. And then you're like, oh, this is, this is a very generally violent atmosphere. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's and, sunk in. It sunk mm. in. And then this guy was just like, you know, y'all muscles better get out of here. And he, you know, grabs a stick and kind of runs us out of the space. And, and then I, Peed my pants, whatever, running down this little hill coming out As you of this bare knuckle boxing match. And mm-hmm. I, I think the, those are moments where you're like, well, it, what, not every opportunity is the right opportunity. <laughs> discernment. <laughs> you strengthened your ability for of discernment in that moment, I would bet. Yeah, you yeah? yeah. I, w- I hope I did. Again, my danger dart is often wrong. But because uh, <laughs> I'm always just like, oh, my God, wouldn't that be fun like you know and then it's like um you know nagin we're in a really dangerous scenario this is wow, not fun wow. <laughs> you know? and so you so, so you you ran off he ran you guys off and you, yeah. you didn't go back i'm guessing that was that was that no, that particular that was okay. it. that yeah people were very terrified <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, was, yeah. That's great. i mean I d- i've done some weird things i've been de- detained at the border um you know trying to have chats with border crossers and stuff. Uh, you know, they don't like that. I tried to open a bank account at an offshore bank in the Cayman Islands. And that's not, <laughs> you're not, you don't like that. And I went in there with like, it was like $8 and 27 cents in like quarters anyway. And they didn't, they didn't like that. They and we were escorted out. <laughs> oh, God, but it is funny though. I mean, it's the line, you know, because yeah. safety, your safety is paramount. You must be safe. Yeah. You know, we want you to have a yeah. long, vibrant life. And that is funny. That's funny. I really could have continued picking Nagin's brain, listening to her jokes, admiring her choices, but it was time for us to move on to all of your questions for her. Now, if you'd like to contribute with questions for future Say More episodes, follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or X. At Tulane Montgomery will get you there on any platform. There you'll get a chance to be in conversation with upcoming guests. The question is from Mongoese on Instagram. And their question is, is there an expiration date for accountability? I feel like it might have something to do with You know, when there's conflicts, you know, when we talk about like some of the organizing that happens, like in the U.S., for example, Mm -hmm. like after the murder of George Floyd and Mm -hmm. some of the, quote, racial reckoning that happened in the U.S. and globally after that. Right. This idea that there would be accountability, you know, and what you heard a lot of was, well, wait a minute. Yeah, that happened a long time ago, that slavery thing, that Jim Crow thing, that racism thing. You know, again, I don't like I think it's like too black and white to think of an expiration date. I like to think of it more of like as we evolve into not needing the same level of accountability because it's now become a part of our cultural reality that that just like that accountability is just like built into how we live. You know what I mean? So we don't have to like think about it anymore. It's just sort of knee jerk. It becomes a part of like our national instincts, you know? And so that's how I like to think about those things is that the expiration date feels, you know, so 
just hard and fast, you know, just like a, a concrete wall. But like, yeah. I think it we sort of like seep into another version of ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've and where where accountability is just built in. I love that. I think that's actually a perfect way to close. I'm glad I did ask you that question because I love <laughs> your response. Um, so listen, thank you, Nagin, so much. I really enjoyed it. I'm a big, as I said, fan of what you do in the world and the way you do it. And so, you know, I'm one of the people out here rooting for you. I mean that. Thank you. And like, I just hope our paths continue to cross. I really uh, respect what you do. So thank you for the time today. Thank you so much. If you want to check out Nagin's podcast, Fake the Nation, follow the link in our show notes. Her latest movie, Third Street Blackout, is on Apple TV. take a moment and just sincerely thank you for joining us for our first season of Say More with Tulane Montgomery. We'll be back next year with another season with an incredible lineup. So please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out. In the meantime, please go back to listen to any episodes you might have missed. I hope all of you have a prosperous and joyful close to the year and that you're looking forward to something wonderful in 2024. Can't wait to be back with you then. Say More with Tulane Montgomery is produced by New Profit and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at New Profit, visit newprofit.org.